There's got to be an explanation to all these UFO sightings, right? Hey, it's Stephen Diener, host of the Unidentified Alien Podcast. And whether you're new to the conversation or have been looking into it for years, you need to check out the fastest growing alien show out there, the Unidentified Alien Podcast, or UAP for short. There's a crazy amount of alien encounter stories out there from all over the world. And the beauty of it is that I bring them all to you and let you decide what you believe. Download and subscribe to UAP on any of the major podcasting platforms. And you can also find it on UAPpodcast.com. Welcome to the newest episode of Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. I'm your host, Jason Fraley, picking the brains of the top filmmakers, musicians, and artists of our time. Jim Lampley hosts a special live chat on PPV.com this Saturday night for the big boxing match between Canelo Alvarez and Jermel Charlo. He joined me to preview the fight and discuss his prolific broadcasting career, including his signature calls the night that Buster Douglas upset and undefeated Mike Tyson, and the night that George Foreman became the oldest heavyweight champion ever, regaining the title he lost to Muhammad Ali 20 years earlier. Hey, Jim Lampley. Hey, thank you so, so much for joining us on WTOP in Washington, D.C. My privilege, Jason. How are you? Legend of sports broadcasting, particularly boxing. And, uh, of course, we, we got to tell everyone we're talking because you're going to be hosting a really special, like, live streaming, live chat function there on PPV.com Saturday, September 30th in Vegas for the big fight between Canelo Alvarez, who's, you know, the super middleweight undisputed champ, and Jamel Charlo, who's super welterweight undisputed champ. Uh, I guess let's let's start there. I mean, there's so much I want to ask you about your career, but let's start with this big fight. You know, give me the, the tail of the tape, the keys to this fight. <laughs> well, tail of the tape is indeed a material subject uh, <laughs> because it is in some ways a weight equation fight. Uh, in Canelo, you have a fighter who has functioned all the way up to 175 pounds from his origins way back in the day uh, as a 135 pound lightweight. And uh, he's coming down, back down to 168 pounds, almost certainly a better weight for him than 175, the weight at which he lost to uh, junior, or excuse me, light heavyweight champion, Dimitri Bivol. So he's looking to reestablish himself as um, certainly the number one monetary and commercial attraction in the sport, the number one fighter dollar for dollar, he would like, if possible, to get back to number one pound for pound one more time uh, before the seemingly encroaching end of his career. And so he's taking on uh, an opponent who might mount a very significant challenge for him, and that's Jamel Charlo, who's coming up 14 pounds to get to 168 pounds and therefore giving an advantage to uh, to Canelo going into the fight in terms of weight, but who may be quicker, uh, who may be able to step inside of Canelo's jab and power punches and land some damaging punches on the inside if he's brave enough and willing enough to do that, um, who, you know, is a live enough underdog that it wouldn't be a, a beyond understanding shock if Jermel were able to win the fight and therefore put him in position to seek the mythical pound-for-pound -pound supremacy spot that now 
that used to belong to Canelo that now belongs to Terrence Crawford. And Jamel is in the general weight neighborhood where he could seek a, a Terrence Crawford fight if he were to win it, just as Canelo could consider the possibility of a Terrence Crawford fight if he were to win it. Awesome. Thanks for breaking that down. And I'm glad that you mentioned, you know, the going up and down in weight classes and stuff because, well, boxing fans know this, but if our listeners don't, um, Jermel Charlo has has an identical twin, Jermall, and everyone thought, you know, his big bro would, would be the one to fight Alvarez, you know, more pound for pound, you know, equality there. But a lot of boxing fans were surprised that little bro got the match. Were, were you surprised that too? Not totally surprised. Because, uh, you know, Canelo is, is looking to fight people he can beat. Uh, yeah. And, uh, and Jamal is seen as the larger of the two Charlos. So Canelo may think that he has a um, more functional weight advantage against little brother than he does against big brother. But they're identical twins. Uh, how, how different can they possibly be oftentimes the weight at which you're fighting is the product of the business opportunities that face you and not the product of um, where you really belong on the weight scale at that moment in time and you need no further evidence of that than to sit back and wonder why in the world did Canelo Alvarez choose to fight Dimitri Vivol uh, who was a full-fledged light heavyweight who was quite arguably the best light heavyweight in the world at that time, who was not the kind of uh, battered and somewhat used Hulk that uh, Sergei Kovalev was at the moment when Canelo enhanced his reputation by going up to 175 and beating Kovalev four years ago. So uh, it's a mystery to me by, by what process Canelo came to the conclusion, of, oh, I really want to fight Dmitry Bivol. Bivol didn't have a huge Western world audience. Uh, Bivol does not have an electric personality, but he was a longer and logically stronger fighter than Canelo in the ring with superb skills that have been developed all the way through an extremely successful amateur and professional career. So to me, that was a matchmaking error. Uh, the people in Canelo's world may argue with me and they may find a way to do so next week uh, in Las Vegas uh, about why it was a good idea from a matchmaking standpoint, but I don't think it was. And of course, the uh, the fallout from it is that Canelo gets a loss that takes him out of uh, consideration at this moment for number one pound for pound and gives Crawford the the leverage of being number one pound for pound if they happen to try to negotiate a meeting after a potential Candela win in this fight. Wow. Yeah. Uh, well, I, it, it's great point you're making. And I just thought the twin brother, the twin brother angle with the, <laughs> with the Charlo brothers, uh, it's, it, that interests me. Cause I'm a twin, a twin myself, not identical for oh, terms, really. But yeah. Um, but that always interests me or when there's brothers like the Klitsch goes, and I always think it's an interesting angle there to, for, to cover. I'm sure. Um, well, you know that I mentioned, I grew up a twin, but ha let's I want to tell everyone your origin story. Um, you know, you were born in North Carolina, what in 49. Um, and did I read that your, your dad died? when you were like just like five or something like so it was was sports like an outlet for you like did you have sports heroes growing up that were I don't want to say father figures but you know what I mean that you idolize and th that was kind of your helped you you know heal with it I'm a storyteller uh descended from storytellers my mother was an inveterate storyteller and my grandmother who lived to be 102 
uh, stood in her kitchen and told stories over and over and over all of her life. Um, so I'm conditioned by my background to be both a listener to stories and a reciter uh, of stories. I was, my wife likes to point out about 75% of your stories, Jim, begin with the words, my father died when I was five years old. So my father died when I was five years old and, um, and I'm living with my mother, uh, my father's only son, along with an older half brother whose father was also dead. My mother, the double widow, uh, now locked into Hendersonville, North Carolina, which was not her hometown. It was my father's hometown. Um, and I've often told the story, and I'll tell it again for you, uh, of the moment in 1955 when my mother took me to a neighborhood cocktail party with adults and walked me down the hall to a guest bedroom and installed me uh, on a chair in front of a tiny television set that was mounted on a TV dinner tray and said, sit right here. You're going to watch a boxing match. The boxing match is on Gillette Friday night fights. The fighters are Sugar Ray Robinson fighting against Bobo Olson. It's for the middleweight championship of the world. Uh, and it's their second fight. And in the next hour and a half, a man named Don Dunphy is going to tell you everything you need to know about boxing. Now, part of it was because, as she said, if your father was still alive, this is what you would be doing, and he would be doing it with you. Uh, it was also because uh, my mother developed passions for certain uh, sports stars, and Sugar Ray Robinson was one of them. If you ever saw Sugar Ray Robinson fight, you might understand why women fans would have flocked to him uh, the way they did. They did fight twice, and I know for a fact that the one I watched was their second fight, Robinson Olsen two. So Robinson knocked out Bubba Olsen uh, first in the first fight. Right. That was right before him and Lamada's final Sugar Ray Robinson, Jake Lamada, Raging Bull match that Scorsese did later, right? And then you would have caught uh, Bubba Olsen uh, Robinson two. Okay, all right. Which, well, was, then which was a which was a decision win for Robinson, right? Yep, yep. You're right. Your memory is, is golden. <laughs> oh, that's Pretty awesome. Good. So I sat and I watched the prize fight. I watched Sugar Ray Robinson beat Bobo Olson. That began a many-year stretch of watching Friday night fights on Gillette. And the, the uh, outcropping of that many years later is that in 1987, when I was assigned at ABC Sports to uh, do blow-by-blow -blow unboxing matches, people would ask me, how are you going to succeed Howard Cosell, what's it going to be like to be the next voice following Howard Cosell? And I said, Cosell's not the voice in my head. I, I spent my childhood listening to Don Dunphy calling fights. And to, to this day, uh, if I do blow by blow on a fight, as I did for um, 30 plus years, the, the voice in my head as the sort of governing example for how you call a fight was Don Dunphy, economical, precise, uh, factual, to the point, not self-aggrandizing, um, making the best use of words that he possibly could in calling the fight. He was the best. Uh, I listened to him and inculcated as a child the way that he did it. And my mother continued to guide me through sports. She sat me down and made me watch the 1960 Rome Olympics because she knew there was an athlete there that I would be interested in, and his name was Cassius Clay. 
We, we eventually moved from Hendersonville, North Carolina to Miami, the very first live prize fight I ever attended with lawn mowing and car washing money for a ticket, the price of which I can't remember and I wish I could, was Sonny Liston versus Cassius Clay, February 25, 1964, for the heavyweight championship of the world. The fight which produced, which was what was at that moment seen as the biggest upset in the history of boxing. Uh, 26 years later, in Tokyo, on February 11, 1990, I would wind up calling the fight that succeeded that fight as the biggest upset in the history of boxing, the night that Buster Douglas knocked out Mike Tyson. So oh, yeah. if you're a believer in destiny, if you're a believer in, you know, certain scripts are written out in advance, my evolution as a boxing blow-by-blow -blow person is one of those examples. I could not resist sitting there in Tokyo at ringside thinking, wow, the very first prize fight I ever saw live was the biggest upset in the history of boxing. And now I'm sitting here um, narrating for the American audience the fight which will succeed it as the biggest upset in the history of boxing. Oh, yeah. Buster Douglas upsetting Mike Tyson is arguably the most shot, not just boxing, but maybe the biggest upset in, in sports history. We'll remember him, you know, grabbing for his mouthpiece, barely conscious, still trying to put great it back photos. in his mouth. <laughs> great, great television camera shots of Tyson trying to scrape the mouthpiece across the canvas so that he could pick it up with the glove. Not an easy thing to do and get it back into his mouth. Oh yeah, it was. Uh, that was it was insane. I'll I'll circle back to to Tyson later. Um, there's so many big fights I want to talk to you about. Um, but I'm gonna. Uh, but before we even get to that, I want I'm gonna sort of somewhat try to go a little chronologically. Uh, what what was so what was your what was your big big break then to to break into the biz then? Like, cause I know you graduated UNC in uh, Chapel Hill in '71, and you start was you starting to get your master's, but then ABC offered you a chance to go cover a bunch of different sports. Is is that what was that the big you know first foray into the biz? Well, you've done terrific research. That's one hundred percent correct. I was in a master's degree program in the radio, television, motion pictures department here at UNC after having gotten my degree in English in uh, 1971. Uh, within my extracurricular activities in that master's degree program, I began uh, doing some work for University of North Carolina football and basketball radio broadcasts. I was doing the Bill Dooley pregame and postgame show on the uh, football network. I was doing the Dean Smith show uh, and other basketball-related shows uh, on the basketball network. In 1974, while I was still trying to finish my master's degree studies uh, in, uh, in the radio television department, ABC Sports came up with the somewhat gimmicky idea of putting a college age or close to college age announcer on the sideline of the college football telecast. It was a new expansion of coverage. I could go on about this. The whole history of sports television is a territorial invasion. Television is constantly trying to expand its invasion and its imprint into the physical space of sports events. Mm -hmm. And I was 25 years old and had been hired out of graduate school at the University of North Carolina out of a 432-person talent hunt by ABC. I'm the first person who ever stood on the sidelines of a football game with a camera and a microphone. Mm. Nobody had ever done that. Uh, and I wound up spending three years on the sideline. And I pioneered the whole experience of the sideline reporter. It was actually 
an innovation that proceeded uh, from technological evolution. It was something that happened because ABC had learned at the Munich massacre in 1972 during the captivity of the Israeli athletes with Howard Cosell and Peter Jennings pushing them to get closer to the story. They had learned that radio frequency, wireless cameras and microphones would do things they didn't think they would do. The signals would jump over metal barriers or go around walls and stuff like that. And so they came back from Munich and had a meeting among the sports and news and engineering divisions. What is it we can do with this knowledge now that we have it? And the first thing that came out of it was we could put a reporter on the sidelines of a football game. And they knew they couldn't get the NFL to buy into it right away. But uh, via an advertising agency in New York that had the Chevrolet account and the amount of money Chevrolet spent on college football, they basically owned college football. They could they could get college football to do what they wanted to do. So that's how I got a network television job was to go onto the sidelines of college football in uh, 1974. And it was supposed to be for one year. And I wound up having to do it for three years uh, because I was good at it, at it. And, and I got so sick of it and I wanted to be off the sidelines. And I realized that this would be the ideal vehicle for putting women on the telecast. We were already noted for showing shots of pretty women in the stands and cheerleaders on the college football telecast. Why not use this to put women on the sidelines as sideline reporters? And I went to management and suggested that. And that's the reason why every female reporter you see now uh, on the sidelines is there. Because I said to them, this is the right vehicle for integrating uh, the gender scene in uh, in sports commentary. You pioneered the sideline reporter. That's amazing. I hey, was the uh, first. So that was my first network television job. And then I wound up getting assigned to all the events that every other veteran broadcaster at ABC Sports had already covered several times. The gimmicky events on uh, ABC's wide world of sports, the wrist wrestling, the log jumping, the... <laughs> Uh, New York State Firemen's Competition, right. uh, the uh, the barrel jumping, I should say, the log rolling, et cetera. I did all of those events three, four, five times. Everybody else, uh, McKay, Gifford, Bill Fleming, eventually Al Michaels, they all did those things once. I was the I was the guinea pig who had to go and do everything four or five or six times. You were paying I your fought. dues. You are paying your dues. I did. And I fought my way up. Tell me about football really quick. I mean, I know you did the USFL for a while with early Steve Young and Jim Kelly and Reggie White, Herschel Walker, but right. I want you to tell me about, I want you to tell me about that, that Super Bowl in uh, early 85, you and Al Michaels doing the pregame and postgame. God, I think OJ Simpson might've been there too, man, a crazy in hindsight, but uh, tell me about getting to hand the, the Lombardi trophy after the game. And, and man, it was Niners and Dolphins, but talk, it's Joe Montana versus Dan Marino, Bill Walsh versus Yeah, it was Joe Dan Scott Marino Shula. and Joe Montana. It was a, <laughs> a, a memorable Super Bowl in uh, Palo Alto, and it was my first crack at uh, hosting the pregame, the halftime, the wraparound uh, of the, uh, the Super Bowl. So that was uh, very exciting. Uh, and uh, I had met Bill Walsh uh, a few years before, before he went to the 49ers. And I uh, had some conversations with Walsh. Uh, and at that moment in time, there was no one who could teach you more uh, analytically uh, about football. He, um, 
he brought a Stanford team when he was coaching at Stanford down to Arizona State. And we had a meeting with um, Walsh and his staff the day before that game. That was probably three or four years, maybe five years before that Super Bowl. I was doing college football play-by-play at ABC. That was probably the second or third regional game that day. Um, and uh, he, he sat in a meeting the day before the game and said, uh, uh, we're going to do something new. I'm, I'm not sure that anybody has done it before, but we uh, are committed to this. We really think that this is going to work. And uh, what it is is that I have scripted the first 30 plays from scrimmage and we are going to run the first 30 plays from scrimmage in sequence the way they've been scripted and the way we have rehearsed them in practice. And we're going to do it regardless of down and distance. Whoa. I said, you, you mean you mean if you if you throw an incomplete pass on first down and it's second and 10 and the next play in the list is an off tackle play, that's what you're going to do? He said, exactly. Oh we have gosh. rehearsed them and we've rehearsed them in sequence in practice. Um, we, uh, we have gotten the players mentally focused and ready to run these plays exactly in the order in which we want them to, to take place. And we believe it's going to work. I believe when the rehearsed plays were finished, they were up 17 to nothing or something like that. It was a, they, they jumped out to a lead, which they never surrendered. And he, he never stopped scripting plays. He, he would do that uh, some for every game. Um, I remember one time I asked him, um, what do you think is the most decisive factor in uh, playoff football? What's the, what's the single biggest thing <coughs> that wins playoff games for you? Expecting him to talk to me about the virtues of having the great quarterback, having the, uh, the, the quarterback who can produce the big play at any moment. And he said, Jim, the most important competitive play in National Football League football is can you sack the opposing quarterback late in the game? If you can sack the opposing quarterback in the fourth quarter, that is the most demoralizing thing you can do to the opposing team. And, and I said, give me an example. He said, I'll give you the perfect example. We had Joe Montana for quite a while before we won Super Bowls. Then we got Charlie Haley. We won four Super Bowls. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, he was, he was beyond compare in terms of uh, thinking and analyzing what it was that really worked in football. And uh, I remember learning so much from him just in, in those uh, small uh, exposures to him. Wow. Bill Walsh, man, a legend. Did yeah. You, um, I want to remind our listeners, you covered... 14 different Olympics. Crazy. Correct. Is there one, I mean, that stands out the most? I mean, I know you were there for the dream team with Jordan and Bird and Magic, all those guys at the 92 Summer Games in Barcelona. Yes. You were there for, gosh, the horrific uh, terrorist bombing at the 96 Games in Atlanta, but also Kerry Strug sticking that that landing on one leg. There were, there were positive moments from that, too. Uh, gosh, Michael Phelps winning a record eight golds at Beijing in 2008. Like, is it, I mean, is one of those the, the most standout or something I didn't even mention? Uh, the Phelps first burst at Athens and, uh, and I was the person who was chosen to do the most touching and meaningful interview was, which was the interview with his mother after all the competition was over with the two of them together, where he described 
what he owed to her for all of the hours, hours of her life, all the effort she put into getting up every morning, driving him an hour and 15 minutes away to go to swim practice, taking him back to go to school, getting him from school, taking him back for afternoon practice, driving him back, et cetera. He, he was very um, deeply in touch with how much he owed to his mother for having become who he was. And I had the privilege of sharing that with them uh, in the wrap-up interview at Athens in, uh, in 2004. Um, but uh, by far my biggest Olympic memory, uh, uh, and it's interesting, it wasn't my event, it was Al's event. Uh, but in Lake Placid, my original assignment was to cover all of the uh, organizational snafus and political difficulties that were going on at the Lake Placid Olympic Games. Uh, people uh, mired in parking lots, waiting for hours for buses that didn't show up, tickets that people bought that never arrived, et cetera. There were overwhelming organizational problems uh, in, in Lake Placid. And also, at the same time, there was this overarching political uh, darkness because the American Olympic Committee was lobbying the International Olympic Committee to try to move, delay, or cancel the Moscow Games because there were Russian tanks in Afghanistan. Sound familiar? That, that we wound up boycotting an Olympics because of Russian tanks in Afghanistan, only to wind up ourselves mired in Afghanistan uh, decades later. But at any rate, that was my beat at Lake Placid, was all that political stuff and the organizational problems. And I was in uh, an edit bay on the Friday night of the second week of those games, sitting with a producer and a tape editor, and we were putting together a compendium piece for the closing ceremony show on all the things that I had done uh, during those Olympics. And, um, as we were sitting there doing all that, we had a tiny monitor on the upper left corner at the edit bay, and in the monitor, we we're watching the United States play the Soviet Union in hockey. Now, this is a key point. It's about five o'clock in the afternoon. Millions of American television fans and viewers believed they watched the hockey game live. They didn't. They saw it on tape because it took place at five o'clock in the afternoon. The United States and ABC both tried very hard to get the game moved to 8 p.m. for prime time, but the Russians wouldn't do it, and the Olympic Committee held firm and said, no, it's always been on the schedule at 5. We're going to play the game at 5. So at the end of the first period, uh, Mark Johnson, a, a little kid who had been the hottest goal scorer in the world for two weeks, shoved the puck under Vladislav Tretiak's glove just as the buzzer sounded to end the first period, and the score was suddenly tied 2-2. Two to two. And moments later, the red phone began blinking in our edit bay. Now, the red phone was an ABC Sports institution. At that time, every facility, every office, every production truck, every single place in any way related to ABC Sports had a red phone. And the red phone was the Rune Arledge phone. The only way that phone would ever ring was that Arledge was calling you. And uh, uh, we're sitting there. It's 2-2, we're between periods, and suddenly the red phone is blinking in our edit bay. I had been at ABC Sports six years. I had never seen a red phone blink. Uh, the, the producer looked at me, the tape editor looked at me, and they both gestured as if to say, you're the man, you're the senior, you're the person who has to get it, pick it up. 
So I picked up the phone and uh, it was his voice. Uh, is Jim Lampley there? Yes, room. This is me. What are you doing? I told him what I was doing. He said, drop that. We can pick, we can pick that up later. We'll figure it out. Something weird is going to happen at the hockey arena. I can feel it. I need you to go over there, get in, and make sure that you can find us somebody to interview when that game is over. We'll save seven or eight minutes after the primetime presentation for you to get a throw from McKay and interview somebody because I just have this crazy feeling that something's going to happen in the hockey game. Well, of course, we all know what happened in the hockey game. Uh, and and I, <laughs> yeah, exactly right. All I can say is I went into the arena, even with the wrong credential. I got Mike Ruzioni and Jimmy Craig. We stood on Main Street in Lake Placid that night uh, at uh, 11.53, getting ready to go off the air. 10,000 people gathered in the street behind us. Just before McKay threw to me, Ruzioni, who's quick-witted and smart, turned to me and said, Lamps, if we had stood here last night, in this same position, I said, nobody would have noticed. He said, exactly. And <laughs> that's my favorite Olympic memory, of course. Absolutely. I'm Bradley Trainer, And I'm Don McClain. We have a podcast called Blinded by the Item. A blind item is gossip about a celebrity with their name left out. It's a guessing game and you can play along. The item might be like, this A-list star carries a Birkin bag worth more than the average person's house to the gym to work out. Pretty sure that's J-Lo. And P.S. The person behind all of this is Chris Jenner, LLC. We drop a new episode every weekday so the fun never ends. Blinded by the Item. Listen wherever you get podcasts and watch us on the Blinded by the Item YouTube channel. And by the time Rune Arledge was finally removed by new ownership from the presidency of the sports division in 1987, uh, we had a new incoming division president who came from another division at ABC, and his one overwhelming prevailing attitude toward the sports division was, who is Jim Lampley? Why are we paying him all this money? And how do I get rid of him? Uh, so he was looking for a way to make me walk away from my contract. And he assigned me to boxing, thinking, okay, uh, this is a preppy kid from a college campus who got all sorts of privileges here. There's no way that he will fit with or uh, understand the boxing culture and there's no way the boxing culture will take to him. So if I assign him to ringside commentary in boxing, this will kill him. Of course, he knew nothing about my background. He didn't know that the first sports event I ever watched on television was Sugar A. Robinson versus Bobo Olson. Uh, and he also wasn't paying much attention to the fact that the network had signed an entry-level sort of look-see contract with a 19-year-old heavyweight from upstate New York whose name was Mike Tyson. So my first ringside boxing commentary at ABC Sports was covering Tyson's first several network television exposures. When he was getting to the end of the introductory violent knockout streak that gradually moved into uh, more competitive fights. And uh, I, was, I was watching that transformation take place. And, uh, and then eventually I did walk away from my contract at ABC Sports because it made no sense to keep working for a division chieftain who really hated me and wanted me gone. Uh, and uh, I signed a contract to go to Los Angeles and work for CBS. And uh, almost immediately, HBO, which had taken Tyson away from commercial network television and was now 
uh, making him the centerpiece of their premium pay cable boxing telecast, reached out and said, we want you to call our fights. So I moved to HBO uh, in terms of boxing commentary in 1988 and therefore wound up with 30 years as the blow-by-blow commentator for the most prestigious, most honored uh, signature boxing telecast in the history of, of boxing television. Uh, and, and no greater privilege could ever have come to me than to cover the fighters and the fights who were on HBO at that time, beginning pretty early on with uh, Tyson Douglas and everything that followed it. Oh, you are. Uh, I am getting goosebumps because you, your voice and that whole HBO team was like the soundtrack of my youth and 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 then you know middle Good. school, high school, all of those fights. Man, I I loved it. Um, and you mentioned yeah, you mentioned Douglas upsetting Tyson. When uh, when when that happens, like obviously. I don't know. I'm just trying to think some of the great calls in sports history. Al Michaels, do you believe in miracles? Yes. I mean, maybe he had a few seconds to think about it as the clock's ticking down, but something like, you know, a, a punch to the to jaw, knocking Tyson out. Like you don't have time to come up with a, a, a signature call. You're just, are you just going from the heart? I have a um, tremendous longtime friendship, um, which I developed shortly after I moved from New York to Los Angeles with uh, the greatest actor of my generation, Jack Nicholson. And uh, a long, long time ago, Nicholson, early on in our friendship, said something to me that I never, ever forgot. And he said, you know, regardless of whether you're acting, you're broadcasting, uh, whatever kind of public performance you're involved in, the first rule for success is don't overact. When Douglas knocked Tyson to the canvas, And it was abundantly clear to me that Tyson was not going to get up. The voice in my head was Jack Nicholson, don't overact. And so therefore, the call, if you go back and listen, is Mike Tyson has been knocked up. Simple, prosaic, straight to the point, no attempt to embellish whatsoever. The next time I ran into an occasion where I thought I might have wanted to have an Al Michaels, do you believe in miracles? Uh, was the night that George Foreman knocked out Michael Moore to become the oldest heavyweight champion in history. This is and 94, course, George, 1994? November 5, 1994. And, uh, and George had been my expert commentator on the HBO telecast for uh, quite a while at that point. And I had called the fight in which Moore had beaten Holyfield to win the heavyweight championship. And there were several occasions leading up to that night um, really, and trust me, I didn't believe George had a chance. There were several <laughs> occasions leading up to that night when at the pre-fight meal or sitting around the production meeting table or walking down a hallway somewhere, I would say to George, George, how are you going to beat Moore? He's a southpaw. He's a mover. He has much better feet than you have. He's uh, 19 holy- years younger. <laughs> oh, exactly. He's a 26-year-old unbeaten heavyweight champion. Yeah. How in the world are you going to beat this guy? Holyfield couldn't find him, and Holyfield's a much better mover than you. And every time I asked George that question, I promised you, probably a half dozen times, George would look at me with a, a very calm stare and say, Jim, you watch. There will come a moment late in the fight when he will come and stand in front of me and let me knock him out. Now listen to the words. He will come and stand in front of me 
and let me knock him out. Go back and look at the video. It's, it's uncanny. You know, it's off the board. How did he know that he could make that happen? So I'm sitting there thinking, why didn't I stay up late last night in my room and dream up a line for this? Why was I so dismissive of George's chances to do this? And what reflexively came out of my mouth was, it happened. It happened. Best so that my- line is referring to, you're saying, wow, what he told me happened. I mean, what, it's, what it's no boxing more now, but you're referring to that conversation you had with him. It 100%. No viewer could have known what that line meant. Wow. No, I don't even think there were people on the production crew who knew what that line meant. I had kept it between me and George. I didn't want to embarrass him. And, and now there it is in front of me. So reflexively, as Joe Cortez reaches 10 in the count, I say, it happened. It happened. And you're right. I'm talking to myself. And I'm talking about what George said in all those conversations leading up to it. And it's the one call that sticks out in my entire <laughs> broadcasting career as the one most people will remember. People to this day walk up to me on uh, street corners in New York and shopping centers here on campus at Carolina. People will walk up and say, it happened. It happened. Uh, and I think to myself, you have no idea. You really <laughs> yeah, don't. it's like it's a double meaning. It meant something to all of us in the rest of the world, but it meant something very personal to you in your own head. But but I mean, it's a bit the moments don't get bigger than that. That is Foreman recapturing the title he lost two decades earlier to Muhammad Ali, who you originally while wearing, while wearing the same trunks he had worn inside you. Oh, my gosh. I, I'd forgotten that fact. He was creating his own destiny. Wow. Yeah, I mean, I guess if he got rope-a-doped on the losing end of a rope-a-dope, then he 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 had to wait and know that he would wear down more and for the moment that he would let him knock him exactly. out. He was on the other side of it. 100%. He took a lesson from what had happened to him, and he made it happen to Moore. He allowed Moore to bat him around like a tennis ball for nine rounds. He allowed Moore to expend a great deal of energy. The attacking fighter is always expending more energy. Mm. Than, than the guy who's on the other end of his punches. He yeah. let Moore wind down his clock. And then he found his moment. It yeah. happened. It, it's an all-timer. And then he launched a famous Foreman grill. <laughs> well, he, hey. had already launched, he had already launched the Foreman grill. He it was, was already, already extraordinarily wealthy before he chose to take the opportunity to become our expert commentator. One mm. thing I say to people that a lot of people find counterintuitive is, you know, he's not just a big grinning, um, uh, you know, fighter presence. He's, he's a genius. He is genuinely a genius. And uh, to anybody who defies that and says, ah, come on, what do you mean he's a genius? Look at the bank account. Yep. All you need to know is that that bank account is self-constructed. That was not other people offering him opportunities. That was him finding his niche, capitalizing on that smile, capitalizing on his ability to seem like the lesser assuming type person, et cetera, et cetera. He, he created a persona that could not lose, and he made an incalculable fortune off of it. He's a genius. I would agree with you, a genius. Um, well, if we have time, I'd love to hit some of your other famous calls and famous fights. I mean, you were there... Um, this would go back a couple more years before the Foreman fight. I guess I guess it was 90, the same year of Douglas Tyson, but you were there for 
Weren't you calling Thunder meets Lightning? Julio Cesar Chavez knocking out Meldrick Taylor with like two seconds left in the final round. Yeah, and that's not one of my best calls. There are <laughs> uh, there are too many words in that call. I'm I'm uh, overhyped and I I'm sort of uh, cluttering the moment with uh, a lot of words. It's not one of my favorites. Another one that people like and uh, and can recite some of them is uh, my call of. Oscar De La Hoya, Fernando Vargas, mm. as De La Hoya is closing in, and I believe it was the 11th round, getting ready to knock Vargas out. And I'm pointing out what this means in the context of their relationship. If he can shut this kid up, uh, if he can once, <laughs> once and for all pay him back for all of the scathing things that uh, <laughs> Fernando has said about him, it was the right story to tell. But again, there were too many words. Uh, I'm self-critical about things like that but you're your own uh, worst critic the rest of us love it don't worry <laughs> yeah. yeah no i get it but then you know the too many words in taylor chavez and too many words in uh deloy uh, vargas but they were both tremendous stories all the angles of which i wanted to try to get into a capsule comment at the end right well maybe you know maybe, maybe you were you know you were still learning you, you you think you spoke too much in thunder meets lightning but then you had the nicholson line saying hey lay out a little bit and don't overhype <laughs> don't, Yo, don't overact, overact. Yeah. yeah and exactly. uh and, and coming yes. from here's johnny <laughs> ironically it's, it's always been there for me don't yeah. overact I so love it. so the times that i did overact a little bit uh those are the ones that i kind of regret but uh, yeah. a lot of viewers again have memorized them can recite them yeah. love them uh and i'm happy with that yeah, because we're caught up in the fight too. So yes, you're your own own worst critic, but you're you know one of the best to ever do it. So of course you would be nitpicking your own stuff. Right. That's how the you get two better. best, unquestionably, and partially because they were in heavyweight championship fights. Are Mike Tyson has been knocked out, and it happened. It happened. Yep, they're economical. Absolutely. Well, how about some of the other big heavyweight fights? I remember. Uh, didn't you call the the big low blow, infamous one with uh, Andrew Galata, low blowing Riddick Bowe? Didn't you call that too? Yes, uh, and uh, and wound up leaving ringside to get away from the danger and the havoc of it all and going up to uh, an elevated camera platform where we had done the opening at the beginning of the evening because from up there, I could see everything that was going on. I could get a panoramic view of how security was failing. Yeah. Foreman stayed at ringside uh, and was a sort of individual security guard at ringside. <laughs> Larry Merchant stayed at ringside, war reporter, you know, yeah. Edward R. Murrow uh, dodging bombs in World War II. That's the way uh, Larry treated that. <laughs> Larry. And, uh, and then the unforgettable moment is uh, it's probably 25 minutes after the whole thing is broken out. And um, the producer, Ross Greenberg, says in my ear, OK, I think we're finished with this. Wrap it all up. Uh, move toward getting us off the air. And oh, by the way, if you have some personal summary comment to make about all this this is the time to get it in and it wasn't until he said personal summary comment that it dawned on me and i remembered that my 16 year old daughter was there in the crowd somewhere oh, um wow so so i suddenly was faced with oh my god uh personal comment and where in the world is brooke and hmm. and uh, how might this have affected her um, and, uh, and wow. the last thing I said before I signed off was, uh, I got a teenage daughter in here somewhere. Uh, I have to go find her.
A lot wow. of people remember that. We people, went down people can to, viewers can relate to that, man. Wow. Yeah. Oh, they and they did. And and we we left New York the next day and went down to Atlanta, where she was going to spend the entire Atlanta Olympics with me, where I was um, in the broadcast center as the late night host on NBC, and we would get on the train from the Renaissance Hotel to go downtown to the broadcast center every day. And every day, people on the train would come up and say, "Is this her? Is this the girl?" How she got out. She she, she made it out. <laughs> she she became a momentary TV star. So uh, that's crazy. So that that wound up, you know, being uh, a happy story instead yeah. of a sad one. But it could have been. Absolutely. Well, um, maybe one more big heavyweight fight that at least I remember, or maybe a, a pair of fights. I remember you. I guess you called the rematch after Hasim Rahman had knocked out Lennox Lewis, but you called the rematch when Lewis came back with the. I think it was a one-two and knocked out Rahman. Um, I I, uh, I called both of the uh, the Lewis Rahman fights. Oh wow! Uh, so you saw him get beat too. You got saw him get upset too. Yes. Wow. Uh, the 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 first one uh, in South Africa. Yeah. Uh, at about four thirty-five o'clock in the morning, by the way, uh, South Africa <laughs> time. And the thing I'll never forget about Louis Rachman one was that uh, Rachman knocks an exhausted Lewis out uh, in the seventh round. Lennox had made the mistake of going to Johannesburg with its seven thousand feet elevation five days before the fight, so mm -hmm. that he could stay in Las Vegas and film film scenes for. Um, Ocean's Eleven uh, um, with Steven Soderbergh getting in the ring against Vladimir Klitschko. He did that because he knew that eventually he might fight Vladimir and he wanted to get a look at him. He wanted to to get into the ring and, and square off and match up with him to see how he physically fit uh, against Vladimir, who was the first fighter he might have fought in a long time who could conceivably be larger than him. Like so, a scouting report. <laughs> right. Exactly. So he took Rockman for granted. He uh, stayed in Vegas to shoot Ocean's Eleven. He didn't go to a 7,000-foot uh, altitude city uh, until four or five days, five days before the fight, against the advice of Emmanuel Stewart, uh, who had told him he was making a mistake. And, uh, and by the seventh round, I mean, it, your tongue can't hang out when you're wearing a mouth guard. But if the mouth guard hadn't been in, the tongue would have been hanging out. Uh, he was that exhausted, and Rachman walked up to him and landed a right hand and ended the fight. The following day, we, all of us, everybody in both fighter camps, were all on the same uh, flight. I think it was a Lufthansa flight from uh, Johannesburg back to New York. And uh, long flight, 12, 13 hours, Johannesburg to New York. And it was it was so stunning and expressive about the business because... In first class, you had all of the HBO pay-per-view people, me included, uh, and you had Lennox, and Lennox's promoter, and Lennox's manager, uh, and Emmanuel. They were all up in first class with, with us. Back in coach, holding the belt, Hasim Rahman and his two managers, Steve Nelson and Robert Middleman. Uh, so the glory had been transposed, but... It was too early for the shift in uh, seating arrangement to have taken place. We're in first class with the deposed Lennox Lewis, the new champion, Rachman is back in coach. That is such a great, a great story. And Lewis, man, cementing his legacy after that by getting the belt back and beating, beating Tyson too. Um, well, the, the Lewis Tyson thing, 
you know, a lot, a lot of people don't know and don't understand. They, they trained with each other for five or six days in upstate New York when they were teenagers. Lewis's coach, Arnie Bem, was friends with Customata. And he brought Lennox uh, down to train with Mike in upstate New York. And they spent six days uh, working out together and eventually sparring. And Mike was the one who told me, he said, uh, the first few days, I got the better of him in sparring. I was, I was quicker. I was more assertive. Uh, I was mastering him in sparring the first few days. The last few days, he found the range on his jab. He realized more about how to maintain distance. He began to see my punches coming. That got less and less easy for me. And so Mike had a premonition, or at least some advanced knowledge, going into the fight in Memphis that things might not turn out his way. Remember, he, he ran across the stage at the first publicity event and dived onto Linux and bit his leg. He drew blood biting through Linux's pants leg. Hmm. And uh, if you thought about it and paid a lot of attention, you might have speculated that Mike was trying to get the fight canceled because of what he already knew. Uh, about the style matchup against a much taller, longer, bigger man with a jab and a right hand. He knew he couldn't beat him. Well, styles make fights, okay? Yep. Styles make fights. Well, I'm speculating that he, yeah. you know, some people thought he was trying to get out of the promotion. I mean, right. you know, maybe it was just a crazy day for Mike. I don't yeah. know. But but the bottom line was he bit him on the leg, and, and Lennox just was thinking – He's crazy. He's absolutely out of his mind. But I don't think Mike was ever completely crazy. I think he always had um, a uh, a motive and uh, an understanding of where and and uh, how he wanted to be. And then the ultimate proof of that was when I went into Mike's dressing room after the fight, and I had not seen him in person for years because he had been with Showtime after leaving HBO and I had watched his fights on Showtime without seeing him personally. And now after the conclusion of the Lewis fight, I was asked to by HBO uh, producers to go into the dressing room and do an interview with Mike. And I, uh, and I walked in and it was very touching because the, the first thing he said to me was, I've missed you. Oh. Uh, and I, I later concluded to myself that wasn't about me personally. When he said I've missed you, he what he really meant was that he had missed HBO, that he had missed the um, aura that he was able to project and the atmosphere we had in his first uh, several years on uh, HBO, uh, that he had missed being the recognized heavyweight champion of the world, and uh, that he had missed feeling like he was the best. All of those things, I think, were encompassed in him saying, I've missed you. And I said, I, I missed you too. Uh, and, um, and it was awkward because, you know, we're in a dressing room after, after he's been taken apart and flattened. And, and the last television image in that fight was a very great HBO cameraman named Gordy Sager leaning over the top rope and shooting straight down at Mike. And you see uh, blood seepage out of both eyes, blood seepage out of both nostrils, blood seepage out of his mouth. Because Lennox had touched him up quite a bit. Yeah. And, uh, and sitting there in the dressing room, 
alone, just the two of us, he looked at me and he said, what exactly did people expect? Mm. He's, uh, he's always been taller than me. He, he has longer arms. He has that power. Uh, I'm just not really sure what it was people thought I was supposed to be able to do. Yeah. Now, you know, he may deny it now. He may say, oh, I, I never said that to Jim, but uh, I remember it very vividly. And I remember that it was it was touching to me uh, because uh, it was objective reality. It was there was no more myth at that point. He, he was no longer Mike Tyson, the indestructible monster. He was a boxer who, like every other boxer, might run up against somebody uh, against whom he doesn't have the right weapons to control the matchup. And he didn't have the right weapons to control the matchup against Lennox. Absolutely. Yeah. You were there for Buster and you were there for Lennox. And so you got to see sort of uh, the, the chinks in the armor or the moments where, where the indestructible Tyson was finally taken. Well, but I also, I also saw the, what the public fell in love with. I saw yeah, the dominant run. Know, I too. saw what was great about him too. I saw him, you know, I, I saw him knock out guys in, in less than a minute. I did the Sphinx fight, 31 seconds. Uh, I, uh, I, 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 I saw a number of those kinds of, occasions the very first prize fight i ever called at abc sports was mike tyson versus jesse ferguson mm. and um ferguson was a journeyman who was in there for the purpose of giving mike a little bit of a test but uh not enough to be dangerous and, and in the middle of the fight fifth or sixth round mike exploded jesse's nose with an uppercut uh and there was blood all over the ring and and eventually the referee stopped the fight and um and alex wallow later to become a very meaningful executive at disney and abc alex wallow went into the ring my expert commentator to do the post-fight interview and he asked mike about the uppercut that he had landed and and i'd never called a fight before here i was beginning my arc in boxing and mike said to alex well captain Otto taught me that the purpose of the uppercut is to drive the opponent's nose bone into his brain. And I was trying to drive his nose bone into his brain. <laughs> and I thought, oh my God, look, oh my at, God. look at what I've happened onto here. Okay, <laughs> look, look at what is suddenly in my life. This guy oh is not God. only going to be the number one quote machine in boxing, he's going to be the greatest quote machine in sports. Yeah. And sure enough, in the next few weeks, they all came pouring out. Boxing is a hurt business. Everybody's got a plan until you hit them. All the things that Cuss had taught him in the gym that he was able to repeat verbatim uh, and turn them into amazingly entertaining quotes. Uh, and and that was, you know, that was what made Mike the uh, the persona that he was. But um, boxing is real. Boxing is life. And nothing's ever going to be perfect forever. Uh, and Lennox Lewis was the antidote to to what Mike had. Absolutely. As well as as well as, by the way, Evander Holyfield, Ron Borges of the Boston Globe, being the only person in a 50 plus person media pool who properly picked the first Tyson versus Holyfield fight. Uh, yeah. Everybody picked Mike to win that fight uh, in the media pool. And Borges picked uh, Holyfield. And I remember thinking, what is he smoking? That that that, you know, that doesn't seem possible. But if you watched it, then you saw it. It was a style fight. It was yeah. a style fight that would always be the same. Mike was an attacker. Um, 
attackers are eventually going to run him to the counterpuncher who has the the right medicine. And uh, Evander was a natural-born counterpuncher with a spectacular counter left hook. Uh, he was exactly what Mike had trouble dealing with, and uh, and nobody nobody really other than Borges foresaw it before that first fight. Wow, that's uh, such good insight. Thanks. Uh, yeah, I mean you've been there for so many. Great boxing fights. There's so many boxing we, we could do. We could do, you know, I think you were there when when Manny Pacquiao got knocked out in 2012, won Manuel Marquez in their fourth fight, and Roy Jones Jr. saying he's not getting up, Jim. Like, your name, Jim, or even the, the late Harold Letterman, rest in peace, saying, okay, Jim, going to the scorecards. All Your, your name, the Jim, is in so many of these iconic iconic boxing in, moments. But uh, In real the quick, Marquez-Pacquiao knockout, you will recall that there was an instantaneous sense a lot of people in the arena, including my wife, their first response was, he's dead. Mm. Uh, mm. That that Marquez had literally killed him with Ugh. the punch because Ugh. Manny was so still, he's out. Uh, so totally inert uh, after that punch. Fortunately, of course, that wasn't the case. But again, yeah. uh, Manny Pacquiao, the nonstop attacker, Juan Manuel Marquez, the consummate counterpuncher. Same mm. thing uh same style confrontation yeah crazy well you've done so much i you know you nascar firecracker 400 with president reagan and richard petty i mean the list goes on and on but i met seven presidents in a row uh, all of the last seven that's incredible so, yeah the, the people you've met the folks you've interviewed it is an incredible career an incredible legacy that continues live on ppv.com saturday september 30th in vegas for Alvarez, Charlo, uh, everyone check it out on the 30th. Hey, thank you so much for taking so much time with us today. I really appreciate it. it. It's my privilege. I'm sorry I'm long-winded. Thanks very much for the questions. You're good to go. I could have talked all day. Thank you, Jason. Thanks so much for listening to Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. Our theme music is Scott Buckley's Clarion. Remember to give us a five-star rating if you like what you hear. We'll see you next time.